Guys, thank you for showing up to the Office Hours AMA where Ryan and I talk to everyone in the Discord about their questions. Um, we make our podcasts, we make our shows with the assumptions of what the Bankless community wants to hear. Uh, and I think we do a pretty good job, but sometimes uh, this, I think just this opportunity just allows people to get more, much more direct access to what's floating around in their heads, uh, which uh, we just don't really have the opportunity to do in any of our other formats. So this is just for the premium subscribers who just want to ask questions directly to us. Uh, we do these uh, the last Friday of every month. Uh, we skipped December just because of holidays. Sorry about that. Uh, but we'll do this every single uh, last Friday of the month uh, with a little bit of wiggle room depending on schedules. Uh, but uh, I uh, the last time we did this in, in November was a ton of fun. Uh, it was just great engaging with everyone. So I'm, I'm looking forward to these. Uh, Ryan, anything you want to say before we get started with the first questions? No, I'm ready to dig in. And we put this out on the um, premium members feed as well. So you, you can find it there. Maybe you're listening there to a recording of this version. If you are listening, come join us next time. Yeah. Next one will be uh, last Friday in March, I believe. Uh, February, excuse me, mm -hmm. I believe. So uh, with that, yeah, let's dig in. What's the first question, David? Yeah, first question comes from On The Bull. On The Bull, are you here? Are you here? If you are here, just raise your hand and uh, you can help with the question. Um, Hopefully we can actually see you. Oh, there you are. There you are. There you are. Invite to speak. Invite to speak. There you go. We're going to be truncating some silences and audacity later. <laughs> on the bull, I've sent you an invite. I don't know where that shows up. Well, on the bull is uh, getting that figured out. Do you, do you want me to read out the question? Uh, yeah, sure. Go for it. There's, okay. He's got three of them in there and they're all good. So we, oh. can, we can go one by one. All right, let's start. We'll start with this uh, first on the bull. And if you're able to uh, ask, then uh, just chime in here. The question is, if fees are the revenue for Ethereum and issuance is the cost of operating the network, does the merge essentially amount to a massive cost reduction for the network? How much would profitability, that's revenue minus cost divided by fees minus usage, change as a result of the merge? Is this actually going to be the first time a blockchain is significantly profitable? I have some answers to that. Um, but in summary, I would say, Yes. <laughs> why don't why don't why don't you start with your answer and uh, I'll get back to this, David. What would you say to this question? Yeah, totally. So let's take a Bitcoin for um, just a model here. So Bitcoin has its very extensive proof of work network, and all these proof of work miners are competing to suck up as much electricity as possible to produce as much hashes as possible, and this creates a ton of costs on the network because electricity is expensive. And in a roundabout way, the electric, uh, electrical consumption of proof-of-work miners is actually the stake on which Bitcoin relies. So like some, some proof-of-stake advocates kind of say that proof-of-work is just proof-of-stake with extra steps. Because if you lie, if you're a proof-of-work miner and you lie to the network, uh, well, then you're giving up your stake, which is the electricity that you consumed. Uh, say, for example, we have uh, Bitcoin with all of its proof of work uh, energy consumption, and then somehow some innovation happens where 99.99% of that proof of work consumption just d gets eliminated, just gets doesn't have to has to happen to secure Bitcoin. All that financial costs, the cost of consuming electricity goes away. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin miners uh, don't have to sell at nearly as much Bitcoin in order to fund their race to uh to mine mine blocks and so bitcoin miners just in that scenario don't have to sell bitcoins anymore uh and so they get to hold bitcoin so there's significantly less sell pressure though or there would be significantly less sell pressure on the secondary markets because they get to hold on to their bitcoins this is how proof of stake works but the cool thing about proof of stake is that it knows that this is true and so instead of just issuing a ton 
of, of uh, Bitcoins or, you know, insert your proof of work asset here. Instead, it just issues much, 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 much less. And so that is the way that proof of stake has a significant cost reduction for the network because it bakes in the assumption that it doesn't have to actually issue to fund the uh, proof of work competition. And this is where the costs of the network just go, go down, 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 down. And the revenue of the network stays the same. And then also if you add smart contracts, the revenue uh, goes up, 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 up because the total aggregate economic activity is able to be higher because of smart contracts. So that's kind of my, my summary. I know Ryan will say, I think the same exact thing with a completely different metaphor or frame of reference. And that's why I think uh, Bankless works so well. Uh, Ryan, you want to explain it in your words? Yeah, I, th I think this is a, a, a really fascinating question. Probably uh, one of the best questions to answer in the space right now is because I don't think many people are, are thinking about this. And on the bull, I, I threw two links into the chat that you could take a look at if you've not seen um, some of these these metrics. The first is a website um, called CryptoFees.info. And on CryptoFees.info, you can basically find the revenue of these uh, smart contract blockchain networks. So revenue for a network, and David and I say this often, but what is the product that blockchains yeah. sell? And uh, the, the product is blocks. So blockchains sell blocks. In the same way Apple sells iPhones, blockchains sell blocks. And so on CryptoFees.info, you can see how much, in, 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 in terms of uh, fiat revenue, how many blocks were actually sold by each of these products, by each of these companies. So Ethereum, over the last seven days, they sold 36 million blocks. That's their product. They sold blocks, okay? If you go down to Bitcoin, it sold 400K worth of blocks. All right, so these are the products that these chains are selling. Now, if you flip over to the other... Um, uh, the other website I linked called Money Printer, this is um, the cost of sales, essentially, of those blocks. So the product that blockchains sell are blocks, and um, you know the cost to make that product is uh, issuance, effectively. Um, so issuance goes to pay the miners to actually secure the blocks. And so over the last, I guess, you know, the daily issuance for Ethereum, according to the stat, was uh, $33 million. And you can see the daily issuance of Bitcoin was you know, 31 million. The daily issuance of Solana is 9.2 million and so on. So one interesting metric uh, for me is uh, I look at the, and actually, you know, on the crypto fees website, it says seven day, yeah, seven day average fees. It wasn't, you know, the, the week fees. It was actually one day fees is 36 million. So Ethereum is making 36 million in revenue at a cost of 33 million. So it is kind of profitable right now. Um, this issuance, I'm not sure if this includes beacon chain issuance because it's only like 4.21%. Um, you know, the beacon chain adds a little bit more to that, of course, like, you know, 0.5%, maybe upwards close to 1%. Um, but it gives a really rough approximation. And so what's happening post-merge is that this issuance rate of 4.21% is dropping to zero. Okay, there's still going to be issuance on the beacon chain, but that issuance is likely going to be offset by the fee burn mechanism of EIP-1559. So, um, you know, the, the, all of this cost goes away and it becomes much more profitable for Ethereum to sell blocks. Uh, and the nice thing about that profit is that profit goes back to ETH holders. 
so the the quick answer to your question is um, yes, this is going to be the first time a blockchain is significantly profitable post merge. Um, you know, not even Bitcoin sells more blocks in in block value than uh, than it costs to to produce those blocks. So it is a massive cost reduction for the network. You you probably read that paper about you know calling this kind of a triple halvening where uh, supply issuance costs are going down by 90%. Um, Justin Drake in our ultra scalable, uh, sorry, in our ultrasound money episode talked about the efficiency of, of proof of stake being about 10 to one, that of uh, proof of work. So that's why this is happening. And uh, it's a it's a massive growth catalyst. It's one reason we're very excited about the merge happening this year. Uh, on the bull, I see you're on the stage. Does, does this help with uh, somebody answer that question? Do you have any follow-ups on that? Yeah, th thanks guys for taking the question. Um, I finally got the audio working, I think. Can you hear me? Yes, we got you. Awesome. Yeah, so I, I come from the world of traditional finance. I used to write research on equities at an investment bank and you know we're used to looking at stuff um, in a different way. So it's, it's kind of interesting how the, the crypto market is used to valuing Bitcoin kind of on this flows model um, type of system where you know they talk about the halvenings and everything and people have been trying to apply that method to ethereum and i don't think people have caught on that you know there might actually be some intrinsic value uh to ethereum through you know this this mechanism you guys just described versus um just you know the monetary premium aspect that that bitcoin has yeah i totally agree with you i don't think people have caught on to this um, there's another post I want to get you to actually read when you have some time on the bull. This is from a, a hedge fund manager that came from kind of uh, your space, you know, traditional equities, that sort of analysis. And he joined crypto in 2021. I just had a conversation with him earlier this week. And uh, from first principles, he looked at modeling the price of ETH and um, you know, the growth catalyst and the effect of the merge. And this is sort of what he came up with. I don't know if you've read this, but it's called Ethereum, a generational investment. Um, take a look at, at that piece when you get a chance. I think it's uh, fantastic and you might vibe with it since it's, it's kind of a way of explaining it for you know, people who've been in the traditional equity space, in the banking space. On the bowl, you'll, check that out. you also have a question about airdrops. Do you want to ask your airdrop question? Uh, sure. So, I mean, airdrops, um, have been pretty, a couple of them have been pretty big um, in the last few months. Wondering what airdrops you guys are most expect, uh, most excited about in the next year and how, how you think people should try to qualify for those. I'm going to front run David's answer because I know he wants to stuff in. <laughs> Layer two airdrops, guys. What? That was my answer. <laughs> <laughs> These are going to be huge. Absolutely massive. Uh, Layer twos are going to tokenize. I mean, um, it's inevitable. They, they will have to tokenize. And y y we've seen all of the layer ones, you know, tokenize. And so uh, layer twos will join them. And I think many of them will join this year, if not, if not all of them. Um, and so how do you get exposure to that? I think par part of the part of the pain of some of these layer twos thus far is they've all been kind of private markets. So it's accredited investors, you know, kind of the, the typical VC thing. Um, but I know that all of these layer twos are going to open up a large portion of their future uh, token issuance and economics to their communities, to their respective communities. Um, so they'll definitely open it up to early users, 
right? And um, we've seen this in the past. We don't know what the usage metrics will be, but um, if you're using these systems in a, uh, I don't know, a, a, st a steady way in a, in a way that, that makes it seem like you are a real user and you're not just like, you know, creating tons of spam accounts, I think you can, that, that's a good way to get exposure. Also, um, developers, if you have an application you're developing on these layer twos, I'm sure there'll be grants and rewards for those. Um, lots of other ways to, to, to get involved, but I would say like get, tap into those layer two ecosystems. Uh, the layer twos are going to drop tokens this year. Um, the other thing I would say is, um, other NFT platforms, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty bullish on. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Like we, we saw the whole looks thing, a vampire attack against OpenSea. Um, there are other NFT platforms that haven't launched tokens yet. They will. I expect they will. I don't think they're all going to go the, the route of OpenSea and IPO. Um, so that's another low hanging fruit area. David, what else would you add? Yeah, th those are the right categories, but I'll add some, some different uh, perspectives. Um, I, I, the layer twos themselves, I actually think have a really like tall task ahead of them. Because there, I don't really know if the like Uniswap with the retroactive airdrop had this fantastic mechanism to like pretty fairly uh, distribute a bunch of their tokens to the community in a in a way that made a lot of people happy. And ENS at the same time also did that. Layer twos are different because um, like showing up on the layer two is it's just like there's so many different types of behaviors on layer twos that can be associated with an airdrop, and so it's a little bit politically messy. But the advice that I have for people is just like consider growing a digital footprint on every single layer two. And like, that's kind of how I, I assume is going to be the best strategy to farm layer two airdrops. It's just like, it casts a very wide net. I don't think anyone, including the layer two teams, know how they're going to do it. And so that means- They just means don't want it to be gamed. They that's don't want right. it to be gamed. Yeah, it's 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 a big issue. But uh, if you guys read Paul and I's post that came out on Bankless uh, yesterday, uh, they th they have very strong assurances that literally every single layer two will eventually have a token. Um, so there's that. Um, probably using contracts on the layer twos is probably a good idea. Um, using the applications that are on layer twos is probably a good idea. The theme of 2022 will just be there is going to be a bunch of uh, teams of all types, both app developers and layer twos themselves, that are trying to incentivize people to come use the layer twos. And as we've been saying on on the weekly rollups and all these other places, the layer the layer one has like a floor of lava that is rising, uh, and so you have an incentive to get off of the layer one, and the layer twos have an incentive to pull you onto their layer twos. And the way that they're going to do that is with tokens. Um, bridges are also huge. Uh, I definitely think Hop Protocol is going to be doing a retroactive airdrop on uh, their their bridge. Uh, so I use Hop every now and then, um, probably going just from like Arbitrum to Optimism and, and just doing that at least once is probably within everyone's best interest. Um, Connext also, uh, disclaimer, angel investor in, in Connext, but I don't really know anything. Uh, their fees are way higher than Hops for some reason, but I think they're coming down. But Connects are definitely using worth using um, a, a Hop a, a, a bridge every now and then. Um, and then also what Ryan said, uh, uh, NFT platforms. If you guys go read Zora's like V3 blog post, it's impossible to read without like understanding. They say it without saying it. They say it without <laughs> saying it. They're like, hey, we're going to have a DAO and then we're going to have like fees turn on and it's going to go to the DAO. They like say they all of the words without saying the, the word token, yeah. <laughs> except the token words. So Zora, I have like 99.9% .9 assurances that they're going to do an airdrop. So like Probably buy an NFT on, on Zora. Uh, probably soon. 
Um, I think those are the most obvious ones that that come to mind for sure. I would definitely echo the bridging, David. That's a great point. Bridge, yeah. bridge, bridge everywhere. Bridge, 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 bridge. Grow, grow the net. Think like the the future landscape for layer twos is like this mesh network of layer twos and bridges. And like I kind of said earlier, like you want to grow your net. Uh, so there's a mesh network, and you want to like travel along all of the little connections between all the different layer twos and all the applications there. Um, I feel like that's a pretty good comprehensive answer to that question. That's fantastic, Dave. Your best <laughs> answer ever. <laughs> Airdrops are coming, guys. It's going to be a good 2022, I think. Um, uh, okay, on the bowl, you have one last question about staking. You want to ask that one? Yeah. Sure. So uh, I know you guys have you know, kind of showed your preference for, for Lido and Rocket Pool. Um, but you've also like had Justin Drake on a previous podcast and asked him, do you put all your ETH in staking? And he said kind of cryptically no, because there's some kind of tail risk associated with it. Um, and I, I know there's like smart contract risk associated with um, Lido and Rocket Pool, but wonder if you guys know like what some of those other tail risks are associated with staking. Yeah, that's, I, a, that's a difficult answer to question to answer because the definition of tail risks is like undefinable, right? Um, there's the obvious risks of like the code was written wrong, um, but the tail risks are, are kind of hard to quantify. Um, and, and my roundabout answer is consider the concept of time value locked, which is how much value is deposited into these systems over how much time. Uh, and so you kind of need to take an area under the curve perspective. Um, and so like as the more and more value gets deposited into the staking as a service providers for more and more time, you can have stronger and stronger assurances that things are going to go okay. Um, and so like the day after the merge is not the day to take your entire stack and put it into staking. Um, I think there's definitely some merit to doing a little bit of your stack pr relatively early just because this is a skill. Uh, and you're you're jumping in. It's kind of kind of hard mode, um, but you're jumping in with a, a reasonably uh, reasonable size of your stack, doing something that's a little bit hard and a little bit on the frontier. Uh, that's where the rewards are. But also staking is it's it, at day one staking. E staking is probably going to be something like ten to fifteen percent, just because once the merge happens, we get MEV. But like ten to fifteen percent on your ETH, like uh, compared to an unknown amount of risk for that first bit. Uh, is a, an interesting gamble uh, and perhaps uh, not worth it just because like if you're only getting 15% year over year on your ETH and there is a 15% chance that you lose all of your ETH, that's de by definition not a good trade because you're losing 100% of your value but with only gambling trying to get 15% on the year. Um, so just think about these things um, just proportionally to their risk and I just say, you know, dip a toe in and go a little bit further every time you feel like you've leveled up and, and match your level of risk with your comfort level um, and do it slowly. I don't really have any um, concrete like, oh, there's this risk, there's that risk, there's this risk, just because I'm not a technically minded person. But that's kind of my, my time value locked concept is kind of how I vet smart contracts without actually looking at the code. Yeah, what I would say is, uh, of course, in the long run, the ETH staking interest rate is going to be basically the risk-free rate for uh, any any yields, ETH-denominated yields in crypto. In fact, I think it's going to be a floor for sort of the, the risk-free rate across all of crypto in, in many ways that, you know, the Fed rate is right now uh, and that, you know, Fed interest rate. So longer term, it will be the 
most uh, the the least risky way to get interest on your your ETH because the the main risk that you're taking is is um, is protocol risk. Uh, and you know, of course, if you know if something happens with a staking mechanism, then um, then you're dead. Now, you you add on top of that if you choose to use a staking provider, then you add some additional risks on top of that. Um, but uh, I, I guess I guess there are there are three main things you can do with staking. One, you can stake yourself, okay, and that's you know in some ways it has the least counterparty, you know, third party risk. You download the client, you spin up a staking uh, node. David and I are staking on a Raspberry Pi that runs Nimbus. I saw somebody ask the question of um, what what are we using for you know staking? Uh, we're doing that, um, you know, just with a kind of a small test amount uh, kind of thing. And uh, also validating the Rocket Pool network with that node. Um, if you're not technically competent, though, you incur some other risks there, which is like, what happens if you lose your private keys? Um, you know, have you set this thing up correctly, right? So there's different risks there, but you're at least incurring it uh, yourself. Then there's like these pools, like Lido and Rocket Pool, and those are interesting because they do have some smart contract risk in addition to like, you know, validators going down and slashing risk, um, the smart contract risk isn't, isn't zero. Okay. And like, was it November? Um, there were some pretty large security bugs, uh, devolved, divulged and found both in rocket pool and the Lido network, uh, that, you know, the teams took care of, they were notified by a white hack, but like, it's early, okay? That doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. That's another reason I wouldn't go all in on staking, you know, right now is because these systems are early. And then you've got the the other alternative, which is you could stake with a with a custodian, right? Um, with a bank. And you know, we're bankless, so we're not gonna steer you in that direction. But you, you get some of the, the the third party risks of doing that with a Coinbase or Kraken. You also get concentration risks. So it's important to note that there is a uh, amplified slashing mechanism so that if too many people are using the same like uh, staking infrastructure, uh, when there's a slashing event, like there's an outage or something, then uh, the the penalties are amplified. So you've you've got that in the back of your mind, and you you kind of hope if something like that would happen, that uh, somebody like Coinbase would would try to reimburse you. But that could be a you know pr pretty large expense. So uh, overall, it's just early, all right. And like all of this is the context. It, it's pre-merge, so we're only just over a year into uh, the beacon chain being being uh, live, and so there's additional risk there. And I think that's what Justin Drake was taking into account too. He's just like, just take a measured approach to it. I, I just wouldn't go all in. That's my personal take, um, not investment advice, of course. And uh, as David said, this stuff will get less risky over time. Uh, the rates will go down, of course. But I mean, we're all buying ETH, not necessarily for like a you know five six percent uh, interest rate. You know, we're buying it for like a you know ten you know ten x ten hundred x. Hey, look, Kathy Wood said twenty trillion by the end of this decade. Not me. All right. So uh, yeah. That's uh, you just got to take all those things into account. Thanks for the question. That was great on the bull. David, where should we go next? Yeah, we have a, a number of people with questions in this document. I'm going to name out some names. CatGo, Republic, uh, Biberstein, uh, Kumundu, Icefall, uh, Spartan Solutions. If you guys want to raise your hand to speak and get in the queue, uh, we'll look be able to look at who's actually here asking their own questions. But not a doctor. You've been here for a while, so I'm going to invite you up next to, to ask your question. So I just invited you. So if you want to come up uh, on the bull, I'm going to uh, bump you out. Um, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys.
Thank you. Or do I bump you out on the bull? Can you maybe can you can just uh, step out the stage? Yeah, uh, look, I'll try uh, exiting and rejoining. There we go. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, not a doctor. There we go. Hello, not a doctor. What's up? How's it going? Hey guys, how's it going? Lovely, Great. fantastic. Are you not a doctor? I am not a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just wanted to have that certainty. <laughs> yeah. It's not medical advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm young, but you know that commercial. It's like I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Yeah, it's like an old like <laughs> pharmaceutical it. commercial. Nice. It's kind of like a a play on like the imposter syndrome that I feel like in the industry. Like there's always so much to learn. So it's just like this constant feeling of, oh my God, what do I, do? what am I doing here? Yeah. I should, I should rename myself to not an investor. <laughs> That's a good one. Not, not a podcaster. Yeah. Um, I actually only have a, a minute, so I'm going to ask the question and I'll jump. But okay. um, thank you guys for everything. I started listening to you guys probably like in like September and I accepted a job in crypto this past week. Um, and wow. with, that, with that, I'm going to ETH Denver. Um, part, of, part of the job so i was wondering if there'd be a um a bankless meetup and then with that my second question is what do you guys make of the new layer ones PulseX and phantom is it anything innovative or just more of the same uh, i will definitely be at eth denver along with lucas from the team and also luke from the team and i think michael wong as well who does socials from the team so there will be four of us out and about in eth denver we haven't um, come up with an actual plan for a meetup but i don't see why not at the very least, us four will be walking around the, the East Denver floor. Uh, I'll actually send a message to them and, and uh, take their attempt check if they actually want to uh, coordinate um, East Denver meetup or not. If there's anyone else who is listening right now who's also going to East Denver and is interested in a meetup, uh, drop, some, drop some emojis and some comments in the office hours chatter so I can get a temp check on that as well. Um, uh, and then just bring the whole Discord, David, on that. Yeah, so yeah, maybe we should do that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, as for the L1s questions, uh, I simply just don't have the time or just the simply the motivation to research every single L1 because ultimately they all kind of converge in my mind from what I've seen so far. They all ultimately converge on we, the, the, what they are trying to do is penetrate the market with centralization and cheap fees and they are kind of just like the same criticisms that you guys have heard on the weekly rollups over and over and over again is like the v the vcs and the the hungry developers see a route to get adoption via cheap fees and it turns into like a, a centralized chain more cent a more centralized chain not totally decentralized chain uh that is all competing with all the other like same exact types of chains uh more like getting into any more detail than that uh, is just outside of my expertise and you and we are uh, neither Ryan or I are very good experts about like the intricate details of the differences between these alternative layer ones. Um, but the, they all kind of fit into the same pattern of compromise on decentralization in order to get scale with strong VC centralized backing. Uh, and it's just not really my vibe into it personally. Ryan, anything to add on that? Ryan, you're muted. Okay, well, I am not going to eat Denver, David, so I can't add anything sure. uh, to that, of course. But, you know, I, if you guys are walking around in your bankless tees, you know, that's a good way to get, you know, noticed mm -hmm. and meet mm -hmm. some other bankless mm -hmm. folks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so on, on sort of Phantom and, and Pulse uh, Chain and, and some of these others, um, I, I, kind of the bankless thesis, and this is something that um, some people disagree with, and this is something like we could be wrong. And in, in fact, um, we're having Hasib on the podcast uh, who's a VC in the space, very very much believes in the multi-chain thesis. We're having him on the podcast on Monday. That's going out on Monday. I think premium subscribers will, will get that earlier. And he gives kind of the, the counter to the bankless take. 
uh, and he uses different analogies. So if you want the, the non-bankless take, uh, then listen to that, that episode. It'll be full of it. But I think the bankless uh, take is, I, I guess, maybe twofold. One, we're ultra bullish on uh, this modular, modular blockchain design versus monolithic blockchain design. And the monolithic blockchain design, that would be, you know, Phantom and a Pulse and uh, an Avalanche and a Solana, and many of them are taking this approach. Um, it seems to us kind of falls down, like does not scale. Uh, increases centralization, does not scale the cost, uh, the transaction speed while minimizing the cost to validate the network. So it does make these trade-offs, as, as David was saying. And uh, we're pretty strong believers that the modular blockchain design where you have a settlement layer that is maximally secure and you scale on layer twos with rollups and you sort of divide your layers into three separate pieces. You have the kind of the consensus layer and then you have the data layer and then you have the execution layer. We think that's going to be the, the dominant paradigm. So we think a lot of the, the chains getting usage today are kind of like uh, more temporary. And it's great for crypto because more users are coming to the space, uh, blockchain like fees are cheaper. And so, you know, if I was encouraging someone new to get in the space, it definitely wouldn't be like start on mainnet Ethereum, right? It'd be like a layer two or maybe a, a sidechain like a Polygon or a Phantom or something like this. Um, but long term, if you're looking for like investment fundamentals, it's it's hard to it's going to be hard for some of these layer ones to compete against layer twos, especially because they have to pay for their own security fees. Like they have to pay for the defense of the network. And in the long run, we think I guess the second part of the bankless thesis is we believe that all layer ones, the base asset, is actually competing for monetary premium. It's competing uh, as a money. And the reason we think that is because. Um, you know, with monetary premium, you will have the most secure network and network effect will accrue to the most secure network. Because over the long run, it's not about, you know, users who actually want to use their, your chain or not. It's actually the users become other chains. And so Ethereum, for instance, in the modular blockchain design just becomes a settlement layer, not for users, but for other chains. And where's the chain going to locate? Uh, in a maximally secure place where you know they, they can't get rugged, they're not controlled by uh, you know base base layer validators. So I guess that's a super long winded of saying, uh, yeah, it you know kind of more of the same, right? These are side chains, alternative layer ones. Um, we'll we'll see how they stand the test of time. I don't know about the investment thesis for them. I don't have a strong opinion on you know what their assets are worth. Uh, and I think the the space could change a whole lot. They feel like to me, they feel like um, some of them. They feel like uh, you know VC like vent venture style bets at blue chip prices. That's what the valuations look like. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a take for you. Actually, question, <laughs> I actually want to ask the uh, the community here because you know me and Ryan have said more or less this the same lines about you know Ethereum's modular design, the centralization of other L1s. When we talk about these things, like, are you guys just like, oh God, not again? Like we've Boomers. heard this before, or He's like, or, or is like when when you guys hear this, is it actually useful? Uh, if you guys want to like in the office hours chatter uh, channel, I like, kind of give you your feedback. I'd love to actually know because like. Every time we talk about it on a weekly rollup, I'm always like, oh, yeah, this is like the 50th time we, we've talked about it. Like, isn't the community just tired of hearing this? Or like, what's your guys' vibe when, when we give this pitch? Should, should uh, we, should I'd we love go to know. On some of these other chains, should we go research uh, Phantom uh, for yeah. you guys? And yeah, 
I'd be curious about that too. So while you guys do that, um, yes, that's exactly what I thought. Quite, <laughs> quite a bit. Yes, we do talk oh. about it quite a bit. Yeah, sorry, okay. Garfield. Uh, so, well, um, do I do want to actually learn a lot about that? Um, for, uh, your guys' take on on our takes about it. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I want to invite up a next uh, question asker. Uh, let's see who do I recognize? Uh, Kako, how about you? Uh, just invited you you to speak. Kako, what's up? How's it going, Kako? Ooh, nice, cr- a nice crypto coven PFP. I love it. I love it. David, I got to get in these crypto covens, man. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Kako, what's your question? Oh, hey. Yeah, I hey. bought a crypto coven as my first NFT in December. Oh, congrats. That's awesome. Congrats. December, too. That's a good time. Mm-hmm. Kako, also, you, we you, might have you, lost you, might, you. Yeah, we might have, uh, you might have cut off. Mm. I see you almost oh. speaking. There we go. There we go. Okay. We go. Um, yeah, I just won a scholarship to ETH Denver which is wild. Um, so it's my first crypto conference. And I was just wondering how I should make the most of it and kind of mm-hmm. like organize each day or what are your suggestions? Yeah. So like one of the reasons why I love conferences is because it kind of feels like uh, college again, where you're at the, you're at the conferences, there's all these talks, these panels that you can attend, you can take notes if you want. Uh, and then, and then between the talks, it's like you're passing through the hallways, uh, going from class to class, from going from talk to talk. Uh, and then the day wraps up, and like during the day, everyone is kind of like, "All right, like what party are you going to like later today? Like, are you what, what organ? Like, what meetup are you going to go to after this?" And like, there's kind of this like social game element where people are all trying to figure out what the other events that other people are going to. Uh, so I think that I think playing playing that game's a ton of fun. Um, there are mass telegram groups that uh, I can definitely put you in um, just because that's where these like the, the herd of people all kind of like co- congregate and coordinate and you can kind of get a vibe check for what people are up to uh, then and there. There's also uh, the East Denver schedule. I think that's actually straight up on their website. Uh, let me go get that link and I'll put that in the show notes or <laughs> the show notes, uh, the uh, the chatters, um, chatters doc. Um, but um, there are people that I remember. I remember seeing their faces at ETH Denver 2018, the first Ethereum event I ever went to. And there's like four or five people that I still see to this day. Uh, and I ju- it started by me recognizing their faces. And then I saw them at the next ETH Denver. And then I saw them at the next ETH Denver. And then I saw them at the next ETH Denver. And like now, like one of those guys is uh, Scott Moore from Gitcoin, who we've had on the show before. And like other people, I just I just know who they are just because I recognize their faces. And so like wh- the point I'm making is that you should definitely lean into making as many like friends as possible because uh, that's what these things are for. Like ETH Denver, we kind of call it a conference. It's also technically a hackathon, but it's much more like a cultural festival. Uh, and so just, uh, coming home with a bajillion friends should be your goal. Uh, and how do you, and, make, how do you do that, David? How do you make friends? You just like, uh, walk up to someone and introduce yourself. Yeah. So the East Denver is going to be separated into like three different, um, uh, like vibes. There's the, everyone is sitting in a chair, listening to a panel or listening to a talk. Uh, and then like chairs are like spaced out. You can sit down next to someone and not talk to anyone or, and listen if you're interested in the panel, or you can like spin a, uh, pick up a conversation with whoever you're sitting next to everyone in crypto. And especially everyone who goes to, uh, conferences loves to talk. Uh, so like you shouldn't, don't be too afraid of like spinning up a conversation. Um, and then, okay. So that's like vibe one vibe two is going from table to table, from booth to booth for all the sponsors that have booths. And generally the, uh, sponsors at East Denver have like some interactive thing to do. 
Uh, and so you can go up to a booth and talk to the people behind the booth. Uh, and then you'll also be shoulder to shoulder with people who are also at that same booth who just have similar questions. And you can just meet people that way. And then there's like the hackers who are just sitting down uh, on their computers, on their laptops, hacking away, building something. Um, and so that's kind of the three vibes. Then there's also like the um, food trucks outside that people are, you know, going and grabbing breakfast or lunch. And they're just like kind of sitting or standing also just talking. Uh, everyone's talking. Everyone is talking. Uh, and everyone is super, super friendly. So it's definitely one of the most like social environments that I've, I've ever been to. Um, was that, was that enough color? I, I was noticing Katko, uh, your role is a shadowy coder. So are you technically minded? Uh, no, I'm not technically minded. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, Kako, was that was that in, um, enough of a, a, an answer? Anything else you want to elaborate? Want me to elaborate on? No, that was super helpful. Thank you. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I'll go get those links and, and put them in the um, in the uh, office hours chatter. Uh, let's say show notes again, didn't you? Show. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. Uh, uh, Biberstein, Biberstein, uh, I just pressed the button. You want to come up and ask your question? And then Ryan, can you uh, take this question so I can go do link stuff? Yeah, totally. Um, hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Um, so I have two questions. One is a pretty newbie question, I guess. Um, and that would be, I, like, I have a MetaMask wallet right now, and I bought myself a ledger. And I'm wondering if it's bad hygiene if I just convert my MetaMask wallet to my ledger wallet. Convert your MetaMask wallet to like your you can, wallet. Do you mean if move I, if your I, assets? Yes. Well, no, not move them. Just um, with my backup um, key. With your backup key, like restore. Yeah, uh, restore your MetaMask on Ledger. On Ledger. Um, oh, do you mean use your seed phrase and put your yeah, seed sorry, phrase yeah, into your Ledger? Phrase. Yeah, because I I'm like on I don't know five different chains and sending everything to a new wallet. I think would be a pretty um yeah exhausting. Totally. Yes, it really depends on how you have managed your seed phrase up to this point. If you take your MetaMask seed phrase and you port that MetaMask seed phrase into your ledger, you still have the same um, exposure to um, a, a seed phrase that exists on your computer connected to the internet. So you actually yeah, don't get answer. any more security because that seed phrase already has been quote unquote compromised. Not too badly. Like my hot wallet that I've had on my MetaMask has been the same hot wallet with the same seed phrase that I've had for the last three years and it has, I haven't had any issues with it. But if I took that seed phrase and I put it into the ledger, I'm not making it more secure because it's already at that point of being a hot wallet seed phrase. Uh, and so if you are looking to up your security, I recommend going through the process of setting up a new seed phrase. Uh, and I've actually done this um, a number of times. For some reason, I just enjoy migrating you like having um, right. tons of seed phrases, David? Ton, tons of seed phrases, yeah. <laughs> in, in the vein of having a significant amount of surface area. Um, uh, sometimes I just migrate private keys every now and then. Um, and uh, and so you don't have to do it all at once. Um, sometimes I, I actually recently spun up a new set of private keys just a couple weeks ago, and, and I have those addresses ready to go. And just like new assets or just new ether that I buy, I send to that new wallet. And eventually, over time, that will slowly become my main wallet. Uh, and I do this like kind of once a year ish. I actually don't have a good reason for why I do it other than, um, I'm disorganized. And sometimes that's just like how I, I wipe this late clean with stuff. Well, the, the other technical question I have, David is like, uh, I've never actually done this, like ported a MetaMask seed phrase to ledger, but like uh, ledger is like 24 word seed phrase. Right. And ledger, um, MetaMask is like MetaMask 12, is 12 word. I think you can do both 12 and 24. 
Okay, got it. Yeah, I've never done that. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Does that thanks. Help? And then I, I still had another question. Go for it. And um, I, I listened to the Daily Gui, and Anthony talks a lot about client diversity. Mm. So I want to ask what client, if you guys are even staking on your own, and what client are you using? And do you think it's going to be a big problem if we have this um, huge percentage just on our, one client? Our shared Raspberry Pi that David and I use to validate some things uh, for Bankless is uh, Nimbus, I believe. Um, and that's running on kind of you know, hardware um, that, that we control. Uh, also, some staking in, in Lido. And I have to look back through and see what Lido is doing with um, distribution as far as you know, what, what client they're using, the primary client, or if they're using multiple clients. But I know Rocket Pool does a good job with this, where they are actively like balancing um, toward you know, lower, use, lower usage clients. As far as the problem, we talked about this a little bit, I think not this rollup, uh, but last rollup. Uh, and the, the, the problem set is um, the Prism client, there are, there are multiple clients for ETH2, of course, that run ETH2. There's like five or something. And uh, Prism is almost a victim of its own success. It's been very popular and well used. And it has something like 65, 70% uh, of, of the network is just using a single client. Uh, there is an anti, anti-collusion and pro-decentralization, anti-centralization mechanism as part of ETH2 that um, penalizes uh, individual, individual uh, penalizes you if you are using one of the uh, largest, the majority clients, basically. So it penalizes you more. So if you are slashed and you are part of the, the herd, part of the majority with a particular client, then you get slashed a little bit more. Um, do I think this is a concern? I do think it's a concern um, because I think people don't realize that this risk is is present. It's a very transparent risk. It's like written in, in the protocol. I think the ETH community is talking about it a lot, but I'm not sure that if someone's spinning up a, a client today and they use they like to use Prism, I, I don't know that they know that there's additional risk in using uh, Prism versus using something like Nimbus or, or Lighthouse at this stage. So um, I do think it's something that I'm optimistic that the community will um, will figure out. So I, I'm aware that there are active um, th there are active risk analyses going on at at some of the crypto exchanges, and the ETH community is sort of reaching out to the Coinbase's and Krakens of the world and talking a bit more about client diversity. And I would also say it's it's still pretty early in the game. Like we're we're still uh, pre-merge. Um, if you guys are interested in finding out more about this. Uh, ben, who is an ETH2 protocol uh, developer, I can't think of Ben's last name, but he wrote a great post. He he does kind of a... Oh, ben uh, Edgington. Yes, Ben Edgington. Uh, and I will look that up and I will put it in the show notes, but or, <laughs> I said show notes, I thought. <laughs> I will put it in the channel and uh, take a read on that. I think it's the most comprehensive analysis of like, you know, some of the risk vectors and, and threats for this. And uh, Biberstein, thanks for your question. Yeah, yeah Biberstein... You, you asked if the, we think that this is a big deal. Client diversity is a big deal, but also I've never seen a problem that Ethereum hasn't been able to overcome. Um, yeah. So I, it's not the biggest problem that we've ever had before, and we've solved we've solved bigger ones. So there's that. Yeah, and at least we have different clients. So and at least we have yes. different clients. <laughs> the only, the yes. only ecosystem with multiple clients. <laughs> no one else cares about this. No yeah. one else cares about this. That's a plus. All right. Awesome. Yeah, thank seeing. you very much. And keep keep doing the podcast. Lovely. We we definitely shall. I wish I could uh, stop. 
All right. Uh, here's uh, let me. There's a question that I want to answer. Oh, Gonzo Bean ha- asks a question. Gonzo Bean, I saw you in the um, in the fans. I, I really want to ask your question. So I'm going to give you a hot second to ask to speak. Um, but I'm going to ask your question. There you are. There you are. You want to ask your question about uh, ZK rollups and stuff? Yeah. Zap. Can you hear me? Yep. Oh, barely. Barely. Oh no. Not- Here we go. There we go. Better. We go. Better. Yep. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I, uh, actually think I might just <laughs> read it off cause I, I feel like I wrote it better than I'd probably say it, but, yeah. um, uh, or actually I'll, I'll just say it like, um, it's really cool that we have GK rollups and these different, um, scaling technologies, but, um, I'm not sure if this is right or wrong, but, um, Ethereum technically doesn't have a monopoly over these technologies. And I think I remember in the, uh, Starkware, um, uh, episode that y'all had, um, they had mentioned talking with other layer ones. And so I'm just curious about um, your guys' perspective on, you know, when these technologies become a lot easier to use and more people are onboarded to them, like what's to prevent Avalanche or, you know, Phantom or other layer ones just copy pasting the same thing, the same way they did with like Geth cloning. Um, and it seems like other protocols like Avalanche, for example, like they spend a ton on like marketing. Like I was on the train the other day and it was literally just all fit, like avalanche stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just curious to hear your takes before I keep rambling on. Yeah, no, I, I really like this question. And so thanks for thanks for asking it. Uh, yeah, you're totally right. ZK rollups Z, uh, with ZK EVM, ZK stuff uh, is nothing short of straight up magic when in, in this day and age. Like this is pure cryptography magic that is unlocking so much potential, so much power. Uh, we're seeing uh, platforms like Immutable have free mint, free NFT minting, like basically free uh, transfers. All this stuff that we want to be able to do as a as a crypto economic e- uh, ecosystem that we aren't we don't really have yet. And you're totally right. This technology has no no association with Ethereum. Uh, there's no loyalty to Ethereum. This technology is completely agnostic; can go wherever it wants. So, um, what's it go- what's it what's to prevent it from going anywhere? Uh, and and how can Ethereum uh, uh, what, and what should Ethereum do about this uh, with Z, uh, zk EVMs? Or we, the reason why I call them like magic is because they are they are what other L1s are trying to do, but with just better technology. They are trying to be the best execution environments possible, and zero knowledge cryptography allows for executions at rates that like are beyond our dreams. It's like fiber optics internet, but for blockchain cryptography. Uh, and, and so like the qu- question is like ZK EVMs, th- they are really, really, really super duper optimized for execution. And that leaves the other end of the spectrum completely off the table. And what is the other end of the spectrum? The other end of the spectrum is very, very strong security and decentralizations to put that computation on. And so the things that is the ZK EVM is optimized for is, uh, highly, highly complementary with a very decentralized, very secure base layer blockchain. And so while you can totally take a ZK rollup and put it on Avalanche, and it's going to exhibit the same properties as a ZK rollup on uh, on Ethereum, the difference is, is that the settlement assurances for the ultimate value that is being settled is completely different. 
And so there's, there's, it's like a kind of like a, think of like the a barbell optimization where the ZK EVM is highly optimized for very fast execution, very fast transactions. And then if it chooses to settle on Ethereum, Ethereum is highly optimized for complete settlement assurances and complete decentralization. And so settling on something that's kind of in the middle ground, like a Solana, an Avalanche, yeah, insert your L1 blockchain here. It doesn't have the optimization, the maximum optimizations, both on the execution and on the decentralization. So there's something to say about the marriage behind a ZK rollup, a ZK EVM, and Ethereum, because it's optimizing for both ends of the spectrum rather than some sort of like nebulous middle ground. Uh, rollups, rollups, at, and this is true for rollups at large. Rollups at large are best suited to settle on whatever chain is the has the most security and has the most decentralization and has the most settlement assurances. Settlement assurances is such an important concept, uh, and it's the block the L1 blockchain that can uh, give the strongest settlement assurances to layer twos is the one that's going to be the dominant layer two ecosystem. So I totally expect other ZK rollups to come in and, and exist on other blockchains, but it, the, the, uh, the maximizing the value of the, of the specific optimizations of both um, an, a decentralized L1 blockchain and a ZK EVM is done by Ethereum's design structure. Um, if you guys wanna read more about settlement assurances, I'll put um, some documents into the channel the channel. Gonzo Beans, how was that answer? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And just to kind of repeat, um, so I make sure I got that correctly. Um, the main value is the settlement layer and how um, uh, how decentralized that is. Otherwise, I guess in my head, the for lack of better words, what I thought is like, you know, putting lipstick on a pig, at least for, you know, the settlement layer for like other L1 blockchains where it's like, you know, they could be very centralized um, at that layer. But because Ethereum now we'll have both the execution and uh, strong decentralization, then it should be in a better position in the future. Um, right. So like, th think about this, like think about uh, ZK EVM that would settle on top of like um, a one of one node or like, you know, five yeah. nodes. It, what, what's the point, right? Like why, why would you do that? You could have just done it on the nodes themselves. And so the, the utility of a ZKM is maximally expressed by settling on something that's maximally decentralized. Definitely, that makes sense. The other sense. way, uh, Gans, I, I, you know, we've articulated in the past, and I, I linked a reference to this in the um, the article, Ultra Scalable Ethereum. There's a podcast version of this that I, I think is pretty good. And by the way, um, D David and I are just kind of like building on what Polynaya has already said. And um, this is an individual who just has thought about this space, uh, you know, a, a lot. But there's this thing called the blockchain trilemma, which I'm sure you've seen, which is, you know, a blockchain has to pick one side of the triangle. And there are three different options here. It could either be uh, scalable, secure, or decentralized. So um, we think that the, the modular blockchain design, which is uh, effectively where kind of ZK roll-up type technology will reside, means that any chain that, that wants to embrace that as a strategy has to really maximize for decentralization. Because the more decentralized your chain, the more ZK roll-up data throughput you can actually support. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that that you know the, uh, the article itself gives, and, and, and uh, so does the post. So what will happen is if you're optimizing for just like, you know, scalability and not decentralization, you won't be a ZK rollups, you know, first choice, because as David said, like, what's the point? So 
you kind of have to pick. Are you going to be a monolithic blockchain or are you going to be a modular blockchain? And if you are going to be a modular blockchain, and by the way, it's not just Ethereum. Like I think Nier is taking this approach. Tezos is taking this approach. If you're going to do that, then you have to maximize for decentralization at the base layer. And so th then the question is, okay, can anyone catch up to Ethereum from a decentralization perspective? It's kind of like a race to fast follow Ethereum towards that side of the triangle. And uh, other chains just haven't prioritized that. Uh, so could, it, could, could something else uh, catch up to Ethereum and be more competitive from a decentralization perspective? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, you know, is, is that happening right now? Are we seeing that? Um, you know, no, I think we see a lot of chains that are embracing the monolithic design, optimizing for scalability and trying to beat Ethereum that way, which is not really conducive to like ZK rollup technology. That's more the lipstick on the pig that you were talking about. Awesome. Thank you for the question. Deagler, you are now on the stage. What's up, Deagler? How's it going? Hey, uh, thanks for holding this. It's been pretty helpful so far. Um, my question was around... Uh, just any advice you had for new engineers or new builders entering the space? I, I know you guys talk to a lot of project creators. So yeah, what are the big problems in DeFi and NFTs that we should be looking at solving or getting involved with? Hmm. It's kind of a hard question because I'm not a developer. Um, I don't actually have too much of a, of a perspective for you. Um, I, I, I can give some general thoughts. And yeah, one dealer it. is like... Um, uh, get involved in some existing, you know, projects, right? So um, I have never seen the crypto space, Web3 space more hungry for uh, technically minded individuals, developers uh, than it is right now. Like everyone's hiring everyone. The, the thing that you can do, which is write code, is the thing that everyone wants. And uh, a great way to like jump in is to get involved in some of the, the DAOs, um, you know, you sh ship some code, uh, you find out what they need the most. And that's also a good way to kind of make a name for yourself and, and start to network. Um, so that's definitely one thing I would say. And I, I sort of feel like once you have that grounding, once you have um, like a community of developers that, that you've worked with and some projects that you've contributed to, then, then you're in a place where you can like, you know, poke your head up and say, okay, what, what needs to be built next? And uh, there's a ton that crypto obviously need, needs to build uh, over the next decade. Um, but that could be a, a first start. So all of these projects are so hungry for contribution. Um, they, will, they will give tokens for it. Uh, they will want to hire you. Uh, and networking is, is super easy, right? So somebody asked me one time, it's like, how do I get a job in crypto? I just don't know where to start. I'm like, just join discords. Go join discords. Uh, like, and you're in one now. So... You know, that's part of it. And so um, I think that's a great way to network. The, the community is very open and welcoming to anyone who can contribute. Um, again, David, neither David and I are, are developers, but uh, I think that's uh, you know, probably some good general you know, thoughts or advice. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, I've got a quick follow-up question on that, if that's fine. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so I know like you guys have never met in real life, which was kind of cool to hear. Uh, <laughs> it sticks to the crypto ethos, but... Well, one big thing is I'm based in Oceania and I've been, you know, arranging my life in a way so I can then immigrate to America um, and take advantage of just the ecosystem difference. Um, and I'm curious if you've like what, what you think of that is it actually necessary. Can you build that same 
network without you know being able to go to uh, crypto conferences like ETH Denver, being able to meet other people in the space, and still achieve maybe I don't know the same level of connection and I don't know if you were like success in the ecosystem mm-hmm. without being there. Yeah, that that's how so many people uh, became connected, and then b- before I would say. Uh, really halfway through 2021 um, because 2018, 2019, 2020 crypto prices were down. There were no in-person meetups. There was DevCon once a year, but that was only really fit for the the deep, deep like Ethereum developers and then and the people that, that go to those things. And there wasn't really any in real life meetups. And so the whole in real life meetups thing really started around halfway through 2021 because, you know, 2020 was fantastic for crypto prices, but then COVID came. Uh, and kept us all at home. So the whole in real life meetup revolution is actually a very new phenomenon. Um, and it's actually very interesting to see. Uh, there are tons of people that I'm meeting at in real life meetups that have tons of connections uh, and know everyone. And then I go to Twitter and they have like 200 followers. And so they're just like not on Twitter. And then there's the complete opposite side of things where there are people that just exist on Telegram, just exist on Twitter, just exist on Discord, and they're also some of the most well-connected people uh, that I know in this industry. Uh, and so it's really how you want to approach it and what you where you think you're optimized for. Um, definitely like the alpha that I like to say of how to connect on the industry is get a second monitor, make it vertical because of how Discord and Twitter is vertical. And Telegram's also vertical. Chat rooms are vertical things. Like the the chats go down vertically. Uh, And so if you want to become more social and more connected in this industry, like having a second monitor where you do your chitty chatty stuff is really, really useful. It just just lowers the barrier to connecting with others. Uh, And you also just kind of have to lean into being open and friendly. It's the same thing as just like, if you're out at a bar and you see someone you, you want to talk to, you just got to go out and talk to them. And it's the same thing on Telegram. It's like, hey, do you want to talk to that someone? DM them with an insightful question that also respects their time, that is useful uh, and interesting uh, and kick off conversations like that. Uh, and it's this, uh, it, it's really just like there's, with the internet, there's infinite ways of connecting with people these days. And you just have to find your, your preferred one in yeah, your I preferred think- channels. I think for me, like speaking as someone who hasn't been to a, a crypto conference since like, you know, 2018, um, I, I definitely think it's possible to do all of this from your home, right? It's like your avatar is your new face. And I, 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 I just think it requires a different um, kind of, of networking and a different kind of getting out there. At, you know, as David was saying, it's like, um, don't be afraid to approach people on on social media. So I, I think what you could do is like develop a, you know, a Twitter presence, for example, a ton happens on Twitter, um, start like responding to interesting people that, that you want to, to meet, uh, maybe get in their DMs, um, share articles, uh, maybe do some writing, of course, you're a developer. So, you know, uh, deploy some code, um, create some projects. Uh, get involved in Discord and, and Telegram and use all of these channels. I um, Part of me as well, it's like, so David and I are, are both based in the US, but p- part of me actually wonders if, if you're picking a, p- a crypto-friendly place to move, if the US is the best place to, to move even. I don't know, if I was outside of the US, I'd, I'd have to give that to consideration. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a terrible place to move. There's all sorts of, you know, great crypto projects and infrastructure here, but... Um, I don't, I don't know that it would be my first move, uh, to, to be honest. Like, there's some, you know, regulatory stuff going on in the U.S. There's some disadvantages as well. 
So I, I do think you can accomplish a ton on, you know, just digitally without ever attending a, a conference. Uh, but there's a point in time where, you know, like probably I'm going to get out to a conference. I'm going to permissionless, uh, David. So I'll see you there. But like there's a point in time where you'll even increase your return by also attending some of these things in person. But uh, you'd be probably surprised at how much you can accomplish just from Oceana without leaving your home, without leaving your office or like your local workspace. What do we got the next, David? The metaverse is also a place to meet people. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> definitely a place. Uh, world, uh, world of hurt. Uh, oh, world of hurt. Nice. Uh, I've invited you to speak, but uh, you might be away from your keyboard. So I'm going to also invite Spartan Solutions uh, to speak as well. Whoever comes up first can ask their question. There we go. What's up, Spartan? Hey, how's it going, guys? Um, Fantastic. Great. New to Bankless, so it's kind of I'm here. I appreciate you guys' article is very interesting. I did have some uh, questions regarding um, not ETH, but like uh, what do you guys. Uh, Worlder, I'm going to mute you. Uh, would it be interesting for you guys to kind of like um, do some research on other uh, projects and what you guys thought? So like Polkadot be one of them I'll, I'll, I'll be interested in. And I'm not sure if you guys did this in Wiki Roll, uh, roll Up yet because I haven't heard it um, yet. But what do you guys thought about um, Joe Biden thinking of uh, crypto as national security, uh, a national security threat now? And then I guess the third one would be, and I apologize, but you, since you guys are so knowledgeable, I get a lot of my uh, information from you guys. Is I don't know if you guys uh, looked into the Vader protocol and what you guys thought about that. And that'll be it. I will. I could start with uh, question number the the second question about the Joe Biden. Yeah, I thing. think that's going to be the best question for us. <laughs> I I um and then I missed part of the first question, but we'll get back to that. So the second question is, what about Joe Biden? Uh, what does he say about you know crypto as a national security risk? Um. So like, it it's hard sometimes, Spartan, like to to figure out what to pay attention to in in crypto because I feel like every week we are inundated with uh, some sort of regulatory fud, right? And somebody's pulling an alarm and being like, "Oh my God, it's the end of crypto." Uh, and so and and we care about these things. Like we want sensible policy on crypto. We want to defend crypto against a political, you know, incumbents. We want to know if our country is about to do something really stupid. All of these things, but. There's also a lot of noise that happens. And so this week, the, the White House saying it wants crypto rules as a matter of, of national security is alarming. Apparently, they're coming out with a, a memo on that in a, in a few weeks. Time. So I'm just kind of waiting for that memo to come out and you know see what they say. But it feels like the executive branch is not taking a crypto-friendly posture, which is uh, alarming for the US. Um, and this week, it wasn't just that. There was also some language in, injected in something called the Completes Act in Congress that would give Treasury a, a total blank check and ability to ban crypto exchanges, giving Treasury in the executive branch more, more power. And there's also, it seemed like, a, a sneak attack from the SEC in a new rule that they're proposing. Uh, and, and basically, the rule might make eight automated market makers and DeFi protocols uh, might classify them as uh, securities exchanges, right? And maybe even block explorers and wallets too. And they just put this rule out. They're only giving 30 days to comment on it uh, so they can slip it through. Hester Peirce, who's a crypto-friendly SEC commissioner, she has dissented on this already. And like, so those three things that all happened this week, and you're just like, oh my God, like, what do I respond to? What do I react to? Is this real? Is this FUD? Um, and I feel like sometimes what we have to do is, um, I guess, zoom out 
a little bit, right? So we should we should expect crypto to be attacked. Uh, I'm reading a book right now that uh, Brian Armstrong recommended to us called uh, The Master Switch. And it talks about how radio as a communication network came to be, telephones, TV, even like cable information networks came came in uh, in the US. And all of those were attacked by incumbents. All of those were, um, you know, tried to be like, they, they tried to strangle these things in their crib. And it was a mix of corporations, some industry incumbent who didn't want these new information networks to rise. And they recruited like, governments they recruited the government they recruited um you know the presidents uh the, the fcc at one point in time to to regulate radio and regulate uh fm radio out of existence for for instance so like fm radio apparently that was invented in the 1940s and it didn't happen until the 1970s because the fcc and rca which is a major radio uh, corporation just tried to squelch it okay so but the thing is uh in all of these cases they weren't successful forever, right? You know, the the, the tide turned, um, the, the the pendulum switched from the centralized information network to the decentralized, and the new the new decentralized technology uh, took over and won and uh, you know disrupted things. So the best they can do is stall things. The best they can do is 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 make these you know create these temporary mechanisms and like slow crypto down. Um, and the thing that that makes me optimistic is. There is now like one in six people in the U.S. who own crypto, right? And uh, massive amount of money. Some of the incumbents are even joining the crypto bandwagon. And crypto, quite frankly, has a lot of money and a lot of supports. So what do politicians want? They want money for their campaigns and they want votes. And crypto has these things. Other information networks like didn't. So I think... We might be in for some rough times. We should expect them. You know, uh, the, the regulatory FUD of, of this week with uh, Biden talking about this being a matter of national security. I'll tell you what turns the tide. What turns the tide is if in the 2022 elections, a bunch of crypto-friendly candidates win and or get funded by crypto. If the crypto community shows up strongly, then it completely changes the conversation and people stop talking about this. So. Short run, am I worried, like, you know, mild to moderately, not any more worried than I was, like, you know, last year or last month? And long run, uh, you know, crypto's going to win. It's just inevitable at this point. Uh, that was only one of your questions, though. <laughs> I hope that was helpful. Yeah, the other two questions are about other protocols. And, uh, the one you named, I, I have not looked into. And um, Ryan and I, if it's a DeFi protocol or something with Ethereum, we're pretty good on it. But other stuff, we have to defer to other more um, uh, experts in the specific field. Um, so I think we'll, we'll keep it with that one. Thanks, Barton. I appreciate the questions. Yeah, thank you. World of Hurt. What's up? How's it going? Can you hear me? Hey there, can you hear me? I see you talking. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. I'm, I'm a gotcha. token yep. new. So yep. This might be a, a naive question, but I keep hearing reports about TradFi wanting paper exposure to things like Bitcoin through ETFs and futures trading as a pretty effective way of price suppression by supplying artificial demand of the digital currency without ever having that being backed by it. Is that something to be concerned about? I think what you might be talking about is stuff like the uh, Bitcoin ETF that's futures based rather than spot based, as in like when you buy Bitcoin futures, uh, the Bitcoin ETF, you're 
there is no actual Bitcoin underlying there. And so like the, that was a big disappointment by Bitcoiners because, you know, if anybody, if any demand goes into this Bitcoin ETF, then that doesn't actually translate into market spot buying. And so the idea was that, uh, well, that in that case, any demand for the ETF doesn't actually turn into real demand for Bitcoin. I don't think uh, it's price su suppression, um, uh, but it's, it, it is uh, the criticism of, of the futures-based ETF on the SEC was that they just kind of rewarded a bunch of the incumbents that get to take a lot of the fees because there's just a lot of intermediaries on the futures-based ETFs versus the spot-based ETFs. However, I asked this question uh, directly to crypto dad, um, Christian Carlo, like what is the price impact from a futures-based ETF versus a spot-based ETF? And his answer was that ultimately, while the spot-based ETF does have a much more direct relationship between buying the ETF and buying Bitcoin um, on the secondary markets, a futures-based ETF does indeed have uh, a strong relationship between demand of the ETF and actual demand of the underlying, even though it's not direct. Uh, and he just more or less said that um, you know, any demand in the in the futures of a of a Bitcoin uh, Bitcoin ETF will ultimately create the incentive to market buy that that Bitcoin somehow somewhere elsewhere, even if it's not by the ETF itself. Uh, and so, demand for a futures based ETF does actually have very strong associations with the actual price of the asset being traded, which uh, was a relief to hear. Um, in my opinion, um, and I I do think he knows what he's talking about. So, yeah. <laughs> Carl, if you're not familiar, he's not just Crypto Dad. He is the former CFTC chairman, uh, and you know he spent like five years uh, on this. Thank you very much. Fantastic, Ethan. You have an awesome question, which I promised, uh, which I said we were going to actually start with, and then I forgot about that. Sorry, uh, but your question's super awesome. You want to ask it? Yeah. Hey, thanks, thanks, David. Thanks, Ryan. Great, great work you guys put up there. So, like we've seen over last week, everything kind of like crash and burn, right? Like we've been pitched like crypto is a hedge for inflation crypto is a hedge for all this macroeconomic wall street movement but obviously that's not the case in the last few weeks so what do you guys think is that is that still true and what do you guys think like where are we going for 2022 especially given i mean the wonderland and the uh, entire sort of uh, expose that happened yesterday so what what do you think would happen to DeFi in the next coming few months yeah, the, the is Bitcoin still an inflation hedge question after the Federal Reserve uh, repositions its stance? It, I've seen that happen a number of times. Uh, and I actually think that like because of what happened, it actually proves that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. And, and here's what, what I mean by that. Um, inflation has actually already been happening for a very for a while now, for a couple of years. Uh, and it's only really kind of actually manifested in certain goods like, you know, food and car prices and things that impact consumers uh, recently. Uh, and so then inflation actually did happen. But the rise from Bitcoin from like $10,000 up to $60,000 was Bitcoin front running the inflation that was definitely coming. Uh, Bitcoiners have always called out the Federal Reserve saying like, yo, what you guys are doing is going to create a bunch of inflation. Uh, and so then Bitcoin went up in price for like 18 months straight in a row. Uh, and then the inflation actually happened and around Bitcoin's all time high. And then what did the Fed do? The Fed started talking about raising interest rates, started talking about quantitative tightening in order to combat inflation. And the Fed signaling that it's going to start to fight inflation triggered Bitcoin to go down in price because the Fed was in fighting inflation. So now, now the Fed fighting inflation is being priced into the Bitcoin, Bitcoin price. And so Bitcoin goes down because they're fighting inflation. Uh, and so if we expect inflation to go up, 
we expect Bitcoin price to go up. But now that we are seeing efforts by the Fed to fight inflation, we're seeing Bitcoin price go down. So I, I think that's actually a very logical uh, price reaction on what the Fed is doing, because now that the Fed is fighting inflation, Bitcoin is going down in price because inflation will be going down if the Fed is successful. So I think actually this is a huge uh, mark of victory for the camp of people that say that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge uh, because <laughs> inflation is not happening anymore. Or if you believe the Fed, inflation will be fought now. Uh, and so the inflation hedge is now turning into something that's going down in price. Uh, Ryan, you have anything to add to that? No, I, th I think that's a good argument. You know, the one thing I could say, though, that is, is certainly true that I'm sure everyone would agree with is like um, in, in the short run, it may or may not be an inflation hedge, but in the long run, it absolutely is. Right. And, you know, so here's the thing with our episode with um, Jim Bianco right now, all of crypto is classified in investors mind as a risk on asset. Right. Which means like when everything's pumping, when the cost of capital is low, Fed interest rates are low, and the Fed is pr printing money, then a whole bunch of investors just pile into risk on assets. And that's what Ether is, that's what Bitcoin is, that's what everything in DeFi is. And the reverse is also true. So when the music you know, slows down, when they, when they stop you know, printing the money, then uh, everyone like, moves out of the risk on assets and into less risky things. Uh, and that, that, that happens over the short and, and medium term. Um, but over the longer term, what does happen, I believe, is crypto starts to really decouple from uh, equities market and from traditional kind of nation state uh, you know, markets. And it's not as correlated with, with some of the existing risk on assets and you know, things like stocks and equities and you know, growth, growth equities. And maybe is much more immune to any move or any reaction that the Fed might make. Uh, and that might take a long, long time to play out, like, you know, 10 years or more like to, to play out. And crypto has to get a lot larger for that to happen. So um, I do think if you look at this over a long time horizon, I agree with David, like crypto is doing exactly what it should be doing, which is like it's it's holding its value relative to just about everything else. And so um, I would say just don't get distracted by uh, by the, the the short run, right? It's like one thing is if you've held if you've held quality crypto assets for any period of time longer than like you know two years, three years, uh, you're doing well, right? And if you're holding for less than that time horizon, then maybe what you're not doing is investing. Maybe what you're doing is is more if you're honest, like if we're all honest, more more speculating, right? And more kind of like trading, uh, or maybe in some cases, as we do with lots of like DeFi tokens lately, gambling. And um, you know that that that's of course couldn't a be me a different thing. It's not David, not David, uh, me more than more than me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, give it some time. I will will twenty twenty two be an up or down year? I'll, I'll just give you like kind of my gut on it, and I think David, you probably share this because we talked about the roll up. Um, I don't think we're in for another 2018 crypto winter that lasts two years and where prices go down 90 to 95%. This doesn't feel like that, okay? Like this feels more like the Fed is doing some things. It's causing macro issues. You know, risk on assets are, uh, are getting sold and crypto is lumped into that. Um, but crypto from a fundamentals perspective seems super strong. And myself personally, I'm like terrified to sell into like I don't want to sell any ETH in 2022 when I know the merge is coming. Like why would I do that? That would, like yeah. I, I just can't bring myself to do that. So the, so the Bitcoiners have what, yeah, Macro does. 
Bitcoiners have always thought that the four-year cycles of crypto have been because of the Bitcoin happening. Um, I'm not 100% convinced on that, but th apparently there's a lot of data to suggest that when like Bitcoin happenings happen, the supply would uh, be issued, re would re reduce, and then Bitcoin would start like a long uptrend into another bull cycle. If we accept that that's true, then like I've had this, this thesis of 2022 will be kind of a flat bearish year, but there is no way that crypto is in a bear market by the time the ethereum merge happens because as we all know the ethereum merge is called a triple halvening so it's going through three halvenings all at once in terms of how much supply it's issuing and so if we accept that the whole bitcoin halvening argument uh is uh valid and uh we also have to look at how ether is almost 50 percent of the value of Bitcoin as a network. And so Ether, which is 50% of the value of the network, half the value of the network, but it's going through three halvenings with, with the merge. And so we are getting 1.5 times, because if you divide Bitcoin by half to get Ethereum's market cap, but then Ethereum's market cap, Ethereum is going through three halvenings, we're getting 1.5 times the significance of a Bitcoin halvening while we go into the merge. So I think my claim about the future of, this mar of the, the, these markets is that there's no way that we are in a bull market around the same time that Ethereum goes through the merge. Uh, if you also believe that the Bitcoin halvings are a significant catalyst to global uh, to industry-wide bull markets, uh, I think that is a very rational claim to make. Uh, and I am placing my bets, and that is not financial advice or whatever disclaimers I'm supposed to give as a result of that. But I think that's a fun and fair take. I wouldn't um, bet against that. Yeah, is what I would say. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. I think that's a great answer. Awesome. I do have awesome. a follow-up. I have a follow-up question if yep. you don't mind. So uh, last year, I think late last year, Metaverse real estate has really taken off, right? Everybody's been buying pieces of like central land and stuff. Real real estate has not taken off as much on chain, right? I remember like uh David, you were for a while with Realty. Would like to take a like uh, pick a brain on like what's holding back that space in general. Why would Metaverse real estate Metaverse real estate be taking off so much more? Than like real world real estate on chain. Oh yeah, certainly. That that answer is, I think is actually really simple, and that's regulation. Um, to get real real estate on chain requires lawyers. It requires paperwork. It requires uh, you know securities law. Sadly enough, um, where like you know real estate itself is kind of more of a commodity. But the way that we have real estate as an asset is structured. It turns into a security, especially when you wrap it in a token and put it on chain. So the reason why real tokenized real real estate has not been able to take off is just because there's so much friction getting it to happen. Um, I remember my, my time at Realty, there's like we had to have uh, we as the company couldn't actually own the house. We had to have like this extra company own the house. We couldn't touch the rent. We had this had to have this other intermediary touch the rent. And these rent funds had to go into these wallets and every, everything was just messy. There was no good, easy way to do it. Uh, and uh, that's kind of, kind of why I think this side of the industry is holding it back. I know MakerDAO has done a very interesting thing with uh, Centrifuge, where they are doing the, the uh, securitization in the legal layer, in the LLC layer, and then they are issuing the debt on Ethereum. So like the liquidity of real estate is being expressed inside of MakerDAO via um, trust collateralized, uh, centrally centrally collateralized off-chain like you know assets and trusts where they buy the real estate, but then they are issuing the debt inside of MakerDAO directly. 
Um, and so like that, I think is actually a much more efficient uh, way to get the value of real estate rather than specifically turning a property into a token. Um, but like the answer, you just have to ask yourself, like, is, is this thing that I'm building completely crypto native and, and has no external dependencies like Uniswap because Uniswap has done extremely well. And then you have to also ask yourself, how many lawyers does this thing take to work? And how much paperwork does this thing take to work? Because those things are just like not going to be able to move as fast as things that are like Uniswap or something like completely decentralized and we don't have to actually do any paperwork for. Um, so the answer to your question, why not real why not uh, real real estate is because paperwork and legal and lawyers, because those things just don't mesh well with, with crypto. Got it. Great answer. Thank you so much for your answer. Uh, of course. Awesome. Of course. Thanks. Uh, all right, we've got, uh, it's at 11.26. We've got about four or five more minutes left. We've got two more uh, speakers in the queue, which is great. Uh, so we'll, I think we'll answer Codeman and SpaghettiOs questions, and I think we will call it a day. If anyone has any burning questions, you can put them in the AMA questions channel, and uh, hopefully we can get to them. Uh, what's up? How's it going? Who did I just invite up? Hey, guys. Oh, What's sorry, up, Codeman? David. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, thank you for having me on. Um, it's just a pleasure to speak with you both, but a couple quick questions. I know we spoke about ETH Denver already. Um, unfortunately, I won't be able to attend this year after uh, signing up for it. So I'm curious, um, in your guys' opinion, uh, what's the best way to extract the most value from these crypto events that individuals can't attend in person? You know, and value could be both education, it could be offerings. Maybe it's you're really excited about bufficorns, that kind of thing. But I want your guys' opinions on that. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a hard one. Um, I know that all the content and talks at East Denver are going to be live streamed and broadcasted, and so those those talks are some of the most interesting. They're also kind of the hardest talks to attend, uh, just because they, they take a while to get back up onto the YouTube. You have to actually be present at your computer to watch them. But I think just the easiest thing for you is just to to watch the live streams. Um, you know, people go to East Denver to watch and listen to the talks. They also go to meet people, uh, but you can't do that if you're not going to not going to come, unfortunately. So I think the easiest thing for you is just to watch the live streams. Um, uh, I can't really think of too much ways to engage we'll with probably East do East a, We'll probably do a summary of the content somewhere. Oh, on that's Bankless true. Too. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we'll probably do that. Uh, I know uh, we, uh, me and Luke, uh, Luke from Bankless team, are, are showing up with. To Ethan with microphones, so uh, we'll be able to produce something. No clue what we're actually going to produce, but it's going to be something. Great, thank you for that response. Uh, I have a quick clarifying question, and then mm -hmm. a follow up to that. Um, I'm unsure. Do you guys work for yourselves, or do you technically work for the DAO? Uh, we, Ryan and I work for Bankless LLC, uh, which is not the DAO. The DAO is, I think, like our sister or like our, our twin of sorts, uh, and so. Uh, there, there's this uh, concept called the theory of the firm, where um, things will be uh, companies will hire in order to just make transactions between ind individuals easier on the inside. And I think like the DAO is like such a low friction uh, organization for me and Ryan to like tap into. Um, so if we need help at the LLC or if the DAO needs help from the LLC, that's a very low friction bridge. Uh, but we are strictly on the LLC side. <laughs> I do think the way the DAO works too is it'll probably be a network of individual uh, contributors and then some like, you know, small LLCs that also contribute. And uh, so Bankless HQ, like the headquarters, the thing that David and I do, we, we see ourselves almost like as a node on this uh, this large media network that the, uh, that the DAO supports. So it's separate. And then like, do we work for the DAO or not? I also feel at the same time that we do work for the DAO, like indirectly, right? Mm -hmm. um, because uh, you know all the content we propagate, um, you know we're we're involved in the DAO where we can be as well. 
uh, and you know we're um, we're definitely monitoring that 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 closely and finding ways to add value, finding ways to bring more people into the space. So in a way, we also work for the DAO because the DAO is to support the bankless movement, which is to help one billion people go bankless. And um, yeah, so we're all working for the DAO. I guess is another way to answer that question. All right. So it, it sounds like you guys already partially answered my my follow up question to that. Uh, it sounds like when you guys need value, you can easily go to the DAO to sort of find the value you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But my question is, um, sort of what opportunities are there for adding value to the bankless business as opposed to the bankless DAO? Uh, I know there's a, a couple opportunities for sending in articles to you guys, uh, but I'd love to hear you uh, speak more about um, how you uh, are looking to add value to your business. Well, I guess this is where we get to shill some of our open job positions, right, David? <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so the, the goal for like the, the little media studio that David and I have is to say super small. So, you know, there, there aren't very many job positions. Um, we are looking for someone to help with operations for us, like back office stuff and organization. It's something that, um, you know, David and I could definitely use some help with. There's a lot of, you know, spinning plates with just running this, this media entity. And, uh, you know, that's a role. We're also always looking for writers. Um, a way to get involved on, on kind of the writer side is uh, write an article, you know, and send it to submissions at banklesshq.com, uh, you know, do a couple of articles. Uh, generally, that, that leads like, we, you know, that's the way David and I met is he started writing. I was writing at the same time we met. And that's where we met Lucas, who manages things for us internally. He's now our editor, Bankless Dow. That's where we met Frog. They just started writing. And uh, so that, that's a good place to plug in. Um, other than that, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know. We you have social media uh, help from time to time. So depends what skills you have. Um, you can always you know, send a resume in if you want or like, you know, ping us on uh, some social media channel and, and let us know what you can do. Um, but those are the key talent areas. It's definitely a vibe of you kind of know it when you see it. Um, there's a lot of very specific things that Ryan and I need. But then there are some things that we see on Twitter and we're like, oh, we want that. Like, I didn't know that we wanted that. What um, do you want now, David? Oh, I, I want somebody who can make like awesome index co-op style videos. Yes, yes. Go yes. check out the index co-op like Twitter page and like look at their like short announcement clips. That's that's something that everyone wants. Uh, so that'd be hot. Okay, uh, Spaghettios, I'm going to invite you up to speak, and I think you might just be the last question. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Godman. Spaghettios, cool. what's up? For uh, having me on. Um, yes. Yeah. My quick question is like a lot of us listen to your podcast and we're like, oh, we all want jobs in crypto now. And we're like, well, what's the like direct line? And I know that's complicated because got everything from lawyers to marketing to devs and then like the all others. But uh, is there a place on, I guess, the Dow right now that I'm just missing or like a place we could create where we kind of have like a dump, like where if you're a lawyer and you're like, oh, I started working on, I think there's a lawyer Dow out there, open legal or something like that. But uh, just a place to aggregate a lot of that data. So if you're a marketing guy and you're like, oh, I should write some articles or some product marketing for X, Y, and Z DAO, and then I can kind of go apply to a crypto company and have a little bit of experience to show that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the the answer I think uh, comes in a in a, um, in a number of smaller answers. The where to go get a job is in cryptos. It's fractured. It's all over the place. Like we have the Bankless Jobs Board that we talk about on the weekly roll up, which uh, we can definitely link. Um, there, there's also uh, this other um, uh, company called Cryptocurrency Jobs. I think it's cryptocurrencyjobs.co. Um, that's like just another jobs board. Um, uh, and then another just like. A great thing to pay attention to is um, 
Uh, Ryan and I do this in the weekly rollups where we talk about companies that just raised. Uh, and then also other podcasts and other organizations do this as well. They just summarize who raised what and when. Um, and like, I don't know if you guys have noticed how many bajillions of dollars that companies are raising these days, but like they got to spend it somehow. And so any company that just raised a bajillion dollars, which is like all of them are definitely hiring people. And so like you, when you see some company like raise a hundred million dollars, you should assume that they're going to have positions open. Uh, and so especially if it's a company that you're interested in, uh, you can just go, you go to that company's website and they are definitely posting jobs and will be posting jobs shortly around um, when they announce their raises. Uh, and so that's, there's definitely some job alpha like that. You just kind of got to go hunting for it. The other thing you can do is um, the Bankless DAO, I believe, is organized in, in guilds. Uh, and there are various contributing guilds, right? There's like a legal guild, there's a writer's guild, there's a video guild, there's, you know, all, all sorts of different guilds. And um, I know they put up job bounties from time to time. I know there are different like projects that the Bankless DAO takes on. Uh, again, Dave, David and I aren't privy to all of them because this is re really is like a, it's doing its own thing. The DAO is its own beast. It's a decentralized organism that's like going wherever the community wants to take it. But um, I know there's a lot of talent in these DAOs, and there are there are other crypto projects that come to the Bankless DAO uh, for help, right? It's like, hey, can you guys write an article for us? And then the Writers Guild has a pool of talent to to write something for them. Um, so that could be a, an easy way to get involved and kind of a casual way to start moonlighting and uh, you know seeing seeing what you want to do in the crypto space too. Cool, awesome. I uh, appreciate that info. Um, love your format for the podcast. It works. Don't change it. And uh, David, I might have a question for you offline that's probably not appropriate for the AMA, um, <laughs> but that's about it. Awesome. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah. Either ask it, ask it in the uh, AMA questions or you can just DM me. Lol. Okay. Um, Ryan, the, I think we should ask this question last to, to tie this one off. This is from Through Hiker, who just put this in the AMA questions. How will you two separate or celebrate when you finally meet in person? <laughs> I sense some exciting tension building towards this event. Ryan, how, how do you imagine that this goes down? Uh, I, I haven't even given it a thought, David. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. Big I'm, smiles. I'm, I'm Maybe thinking, a hug. I don't know. Are yeah, you a hugger, I'm dude? thinking a, a chariot, a slow hug? motion chariots of fire <laughs> across the stage while while we're running towards each other and we hug. That, that's oh, wow. how I'm picturing yeah, that's, this. That's pretty glamorous. I don't know. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit more low key in person, David. I, you know, <laughs> Do you I, think the people at Permissionless Conference will give a fuck about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say no. Anyway, it'll be fun. <laughs> It'll be uh, it'll be exciting. You know, you you can figure out whether I'm like uh, five foot two or whether I'm six foot four. You still don't know yet. Uh, uh, I, I know where I'm placing my bets. <laughs> <laughs> On the lower end of that spectrum. Yeah. Anyway, guys, this has been a blast. Um, everyone is listening. Premium members, we appreciate you so much. Uh, we will be doing this again next month, next uh, February, the last February Friday in February. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we appreciate this community so much. We appreciate you as premium members. And uh, yeah, get your questions ready. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers, guys. Thank you so much. Peace. Bye.